0: Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering these new faces of Boston.
1: You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the Radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley, this week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley.
0: It is after 10. Give my daughter the pain shot, please. Mrs. Greenway, I was going to. Oh, good. Go ahead. In Just a few minutes. Well, please. It's it's after 10. It's after 10. I don't see why she has to have this pain.
2: Ma'am, it's not my patient. It's time for her shot. You understand? Do something.
0: All she has to do
2: is hold on until 10, and it's past 10. She's in pain. My daughter is in pain. Give her the shot. Do you understand? Going to
1: the, the shot! That scene from the 1983 film Terms of Endearment earned actress Shirley MacLaine an Oscar. She played fiercely protective Aurora Greenway, demanding care from a seemingly uncaring or incompetent nurse. But reviewing that moment from the nurse's perspective reveals a more mundane reality a staffing issue. The fictional nurse was juggling a number of patients. Experts have long worried that patients' quality of care can suffer depending on the number of nurses on the job. But Is it best to legally limit how many patients one nurse can care for or to keep the policy as it is and allow nurse staffing assignments to adjust as need and circumstances arise? That's what Massachusetts voters will decide when they cast a ballot for ballot question one. Later in the show, just last month, Gabriella Lowell was walking across the street when she was struck and killed by a driver who took his eyes off the road to glance down at his phone. Another tragedy motivating advocates to push for a bill this year requiring hands-free driving.
3: My name is Jacey. I just really quickly want to have a chat, tell you what happened
1: to me. Driver on his phone... Was so distracted. He turned left into the intersection at a red light. Another car, an 18-wheeler, swerved to miss him and hit my family's car. And the resulting collision actually killed both of my parents. Uh, I live with a partially paralyzed body. Distracted driving kills, and Gabriella's mother, Allison Lowell, is here to make sure drivers understand the deadly consequences. But first, ballot question one will determine whether the state should require a specific number of nurses for patient care. Joining me in the studio are two nurses who are on opposite sides of question one, but who happen to share the same first name. Donna Kelly Williams is a registered nurse at the Cambridge Hospital Birth Center and president of the Massachusetts Nurses Association, or the MNA. She is a yes for question one. Hello, Donna. Hi, Kelly. Nice to, nice to see you and thank you for having me. Of course. Donna Glenn is a registered nurse at the VA Boston Healthcare System and president of the ANA, the American Nurses Association of Massachusetts. She is a no for question one. Welcome, Donna. Thank you, Callie. It's a pleasure. All right. So this is a a complicated question for uh, a lot of the uh, voters, I think for most voters. I just want to let voters first of all know, here's what you're going to see on the ballot. And it's a little bit wonky. Do you approve of a law summarized below on which no vote was taken by the Senate or the House of Representatives on or before May 2nd, 2018? And then it says, here's the summary. This proposed law would limit how many patients could be assigned to each registered nurse in Massachusetts hospitals and certain other healthcare facilities. The maximum number of patients per registered nurse would vary by type of unit, and level of care. So here's an example: in units with step-down slash intermediate care patients, three patients per nurse. In units with post anesthesia care or operating room patients, one patient under anesthesia per nurse, or two patients post anesthesia, and on and on. Um, very quite detailed. So it's a lot for people to be reading in the bo- in the voting booth. So they need to understand really what the what the factors are um, from the beginning. So Donna Kelly Williams, um, your organization is for. Uh, the ballot question. Tell me why. I'll tell you why, Kelly, because this actual ballot initiative was written
2: by registered nurses that care for patients at the bedside, and those are the nurses that are supporting this ballot initiative going forward. As a nurse who has been practicing at the bedside for over 40 years, I can tell you we just heard from you uh, a comment about a distracted driver. The same thing happens in nursing. If we're distracted by having too many patients assigned at one time, Patients are harmed in ways such as medical areas, medication areas, er- errors, and not being able to be cared for by the way that we were trained as registered nurses and licensed by the Commonwealth to be able to care for our patients. The research is very clear. Peer-reviewed research over the last 20 years has shown that safe patient limits is the safest way to take care of patients. And that's why in the ballot initiative, it's very clear that this is specific to the type of patient that you are. So if you're a patient that's coming out of the operating room during that critical period of time when you've gone from a sleeping, an artificially sleeping state while you were having your surgery to being awake postoperatively, there is one nurse there, to make sure that your airway is protected and your recovery from the anesthesia is safe. And that's why the flexibility is there based on the specific unit that you would find yourself in as a patient. And what we've all seen is it's much more difficult to be a patient in the hospital today because you are not in the hospital unless you are very, very sick. Most things are cared for in the outpatient Mm -hmm. setting. But should you be a patient in the hospital, you are there because you need nursing care.
1: So, just so people understand, uh, you know, right now there are some adjustments as need be uh, in hospitals. Why do you think it's the, the legal limitation is the key here? So, for
2: example, if I'm a nurse on a unit where I'm assigned five or six patients on a medical surgical unit, where it's very clear, according to the research and many, many research studies, that the limit on a medical surgical floor should be no more than four patients, and the opportunity to adjust that would be that I, as the nurse on the floor, would be calling my supervisor, the hospital executive that's in charge of the hospital, to say, I need additional resources in order to safely care for that patient. And right now the response that nurses get is, do the best you can. And we're saying that's not acceptable, safe patient care because you don't want your loved one to be in a situation of that nurse doing the best that they can to provide your care. And I think if you ask anyone who's listening right now to talk to a nurse who actually cares for patients in the hospital, how they feel about their nurse caring for too many patients at one time, ask them what the consequences that they see and why this is so important.
1: Okay, that's my guest, uh, Donna Kelly Williams. She is for ballot question one. I want to just play, just to put a button on this part of the conversation with you, a clip from the ad that you all, your organization was running to emphasize why you feel there is a need for legal limits. There are dozens of independent studies from respected medical journals which show over and over again that quality of care decreases
2: dramatically if nurses are forced to care for too many patients. Now hospital CEOs are claiming that this will cost too much, but these same studies show that when patients have better nursing care, the quality of care improves and costs are
1: lower in the long run. There should be limits. That's why I'm voting yes for patient limits. All right. So that's the bottom line on yes. Now we're moving over to no. And to my guest, Donna Glenn, who is also a nurse, but she is against this initiative. Tell me why.
3: Myself and the American Nurses Association of Massachusetts is against question one on the ballot because it will override the professional judgment of nurses. Nurses know our patients best, and we don't need a rigid government mandate making our decisions at the bedside. Each patient is different. You cannot assign a number to a patient. Patients seek health care for a variety of reasons, with a variety of conditions and a variety of concerns. We need nurses to be able to utilize their judgment, to assess these patients. There is no one magic number that works. A nurse on a med surge unit could have two patients and be completely overwhelmed because of the care that that patient requires. In addition, no two nurses are the same. We all have different experience. I have 39 years of experience with the majority of it at the bedside. I work now with novice nurses. How can you compare a nurse with 40 years to a nurse just coming out of school, and are they expected to carry the same assignment under this rigid mandate? We can't treat patients as numbers, and we can't treat nurses as numbers. This bill would mandate rigid government ratios in every hospital at all times, 24-7. And every hospital is not the same. The level of care at a Boston hospital may be very different from the level of care in a community hospital. And we worry about access to care. Will patients have the same access if a hospital is at its ratio? My husband's in law enforcement. mm -hmm. I worry about, in an emergency situation, my husband being able to access care if the local emergency department is at their maximum. This bill offers... No flexibility or exceptions, and doesn't allow for nursing judgment.
1: So it's not that you're not saying there should be an appropriate number of nurses per patient. You're saying I'm opposed to the, or your your organization's opposed to the legal limiting of that. The,
3: the mandated mm-hmm. government, and as the president of the American Nurse Association of Massachusetts, when this bill is defeated. I promise every nurse in the Commonwealth that I will work with the bedside nurses, with nursing administration, with nursing leadership, and with the hospital executives to come up with a hospital-based solution. This is not the hospital executives against nursing. This is nurses deciding, do we want government handling our decisions.
1: Now you know Donna Glenn that's what everybody that's that is the criticism that it is the hospital executives making the decisions not the nurses and that's the concern you want to I'll give you a moment to say why that's not the case because it kind of looks like that on the outside. Well,
3: nurses (laughs) have to come up to the table. Nurses have to be present at the table. And a a committee approached solution to this is where 55% of the committee is made up of bedside nurses deciding what's going on. I the American Nurses Association. So just to be
1: clear, you're saying in the moment, you've got the nurses making decisions. Correct. Yes, not where the hospital is Not not the the government, not the hospital. And And that would
3: be the change, a committee-based nursing approach. I'm not saying staffing's perfect. We're not saying that at all. But we don't want government involved in
1: making nursing decisions. Okay, so let me put a button on what you just said, the no perspective, and this is your ad, Teamwork as nurses is crucial. Every second counts. You have to be on your toes all the time.
3: That's why the government-mandated nurse staffing proposal is so risky. It puts government in charge of deciding how nurses care for patients with the same rigid staffing ratios at every hospital in our state. And that's why it's opposed by the American Nurses Association of Massachusetts.
1: You can never apply a one-size-fits-all to nursing. It's not good for patients. It's not
0: fair for patients.
1: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Donna Kelly Williams and Donna Glenn. We're discussing the pros and cons of ballot question one from their perspectives, which would legally require hospitals to limit the number of patients nurses can care for. All right. So we've heard from both of you about why you feel very strongly that there should not be legal limits and there should be legal limits. So let's get down into some of the some of the specifics of of the bill. The place where there is legal limits right now in action is California. Donna Kelly Williams and our great reporter here, uh, Gabriela Emanuel, did a piece looking at just this question and talked to someone who studied California quite carefully. And she was not going to say one way or the other what she thought was good. But she did say what both of you say is that um, there are many studies that show that more nurses, better patient outcomes. The question is, is that a direct cause and link or not? According to some researchers, is not. But there is clear evidence that if you have more nurses, there is better patient outcomes, and that California seemed not to suffer from some of the issues that the opponents at the time came up with—that they would be, you know, closures or uh, people would wait too long. All of that went away. However, the California bill is quite different from the Massachusetts bill. So can you address some of the concerns that make the Massachusetts bill a little bit more rigid than California's? Mm
2: -hmm. So I'm happy to, Callie. Thank you for that. I I think it's important to note that the, the California law has been in place since 2004, completely in place. And since then, there has been more research, and patients in hospitals are sicker now than they were when those first mandates were put into place. But I do want to comment on something that Donna had said from the perspective of the hospital. Donna second, Glenn, you're Donna Kelly, Williams. Right, exactly, okay. Okay. is that, uh, first of all, the, the rigidness of these government-mandated ratios is is false. The bottom line is these are safe patient limits, and I can explain what the difference is. A ratio would mean that if it was medical-surgical, that every single nurse, despite their background, would be required to take care of four patients. That's not what this says. This says that any nurse taking care of a medical surgical patient would not care for more than four patients. But based on the patient's acuity, the needs of that patient in that time period would be determined by that registered nurse in order to craft the care for that patient. And that nurse, if she deemed that that patient required more care, could take care of less patients and certainly divide that care into fewer number of patients, assuring that those patients receive the care that they so desperately need. And I do want to touch base on another thing that my colleague has said regarding the governance, the nurse practice councils. So having been working on this for over 20 years, hearing from nurses across the Commonwealth of Massachusetts saying we can no longer continue to be taking care of so many patients that our patients are being harmed and our patients are at risk. So we looked at that nursing governance model, and many hospitals have them in place. But the bottom line is to be able to care for patients safely, there needs to be a limit. The governance practice councils have not worked in many states. They've tried them. We've tried them here. They do not work. What we need is a safe limit to the number
1: of patients assigned to a nurse. So, just to put a button on that, what you're saying, Donna Kelly Williams, who is for the ballot question, yes, there are committees where nurses are involved in the decision making. But what has what you have seen over time is that somehow gets overruled. And the bottom line is, if there's not something that says we don't care what happens, you stick to these limits at the minimum, then there's a problem. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So now moving over to Donna Glenn, who says, no, the no. committee practice governance does well, work. Well, okay. let me tell you that <laughs> yeah. right
3: now there's a shortage of nurses in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Donna, that's so, so Excuse me. Well, hold on. Let, me. Let, let, let Donna there's Glenn. There's a shortage of nurses, okay. and we're mm-hmm. expecting that shortage of nurses to grow. I guarantee you that every nurse under this bill will have four patients because we're going to be looking at a different model of nursing care. Nursing care is not just nursing care. It's interprofessional. Look at behavioral health. There's counselors. There's social workers. There's nurses. There's patient care assistants. It takes a team. By going with this rigid mandate, we're going to be eliminating other services. Um, we have to look at this in many maintain the voice of nursing. And let me tell you that 19 years ago when California implemented this, they are still the only state in the nation to implement government mandated ratios. If this magic number works, why in almost two decades have no other states followed? However, using a committee-based solution has to be the answer. I don't want government in my profession, and most people don't. And I currently am a nurse scientist, so I review literature. There are very few research articles out there that state that this has improved patient outcomes. It had improved, one stated it improved nursing satisfaction, but when we look at patient outcomes, the data does not support this. I'm a
1: neuroscientist. I turn to the data. The data is not there. So let me tell my listeners, there's plenty of data on both sides. Absolutely. <laughs> so just so voters can sort of get it in their minds, I'm going to give you a quote from two well-known researchers in this field who have opposite viewpoints on this mm-hmm. so that you can take that into the ballot room with you as you consider this. Because it's this is one of those situations where research alone is not going to tell you. You're going to have to weigh many other factors along with it. So from Matthew McHugh, he's the Independence Chair for Nursing Education and a Professor of Nursing and the Associate Director of the Center for Health Outcomes and Policy Research at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. He says, the evidence on the relationship between nurse staffing and patient outcomes is one of the most robust in the health services literature. He gave a few examples. Patient cared for in hospitals with better nurse staffing, less likely to die, develop an infection, be readmitted. These are all followed with some quotes from uh, literature. Our research shows that when you study hundreds of hospitals, both in the U.S. and around the world, staffing varies significantly from one hospital to the next. Patients would be surprised to see how much nurse staffing depends on the hospital you go to and not how sick you are. So he is very much in favor of uh, your position, Massachusetts Nursing Association, Donna Kelly Williams. He says, he doesn't say uh, yes, but he's saying that his research points in your direction. He's not taking a position. On the other hand, Peter Beerhouse, who is a nurse and healthcare economist, and well known for his studies and publications focused on nursing and physician workforces in the United States. He is a professor in the College of Nursing and a director of the Center for Interdisciplinary Health Workforce Studies at Montana State University. He says, Based on insights from many research studies, some even published in the New England Journal of Medicine, it is impossible to develop a staffing ratio that can account for differences, this is your point, Donna Glenn, in nurses' education, experience, their competence, skills, communication, and productivity, as well as differences among patients, the severity of their illness, cultural background, age, and other factors, or account for differences in the types of nursing work performed on the day, evening, or night shifts that vary across hospitals or establish a ratio that accounts for all the different technology and types of health professionals that are used in community, public, inner city, rural, small, or large teaching hospitals. All right, Absolutely. so now we've given both research people's positions. We've heard your general positions. So now I want you to give me one good example from each of your side that makes the case for your point. I'm going to start with you, Donna Kelly Williams, for the ballot question. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. As a registered
2: nurse who works... Primarily right now in a breast center, but my background also includes a pediatric career of over 25 years. Based on the research by the specialty organization that I am a part of, the first 60 seconds of your life when you enter into the world are the most important in your whole life. And many times that's the position that I hold in the hospital is that when a new baby is being born, my role is to have my eyes only on that baby, the emergence of that baby into a healthy environment and to identify any concerns that might that baby might be showing me that that baby needs more intensive care than just going up to mom and dad, um, but to be able to come to the warmer, to have the team there to be able to assist that baby. There is another nurse whose prime responsibility is for the care of that mother. This is based on... All of the research that says this is the safest way to care for a mom and a baby during that critical period of delivery. So that's one example of the specialty area that we have noted in the limits that we have in place for that particular specialty area. And the reason for that is so that the safety of the patient is the primary concern. What we need to do is to ensure that patients themselves are the ones that are being cared for in the very best way that I have been trained to do, that the Commonwealth of Massachusetts gives me a license to be able to do, and to be able to do it to the best of my ability.
1: Um, Let me ask this question. Do you think, Donna Kelly-Williams, who is for ballot question one, that a legal limit gives comfort to nurses that they feel like, I, I'm going to have my backup. I, I don't have to worry about that.
2: Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And to to speak to that, I would like to speak to the fact that not only do I hear from nurses across the state, but I also have a daughter who recently entered nursing, who's mm-hmm. in her third year of nursing. Um, and she can tell me firsthand what it's like to be a new nurse on the floor. And she actually left working on a medical surgical floor because she was assigned eight Patients Mm. at one time and said she doesn't, she just can't do that anymore. And rather than leave nursing, she left that specialty. But I can tell you that many of the young nurses that she graduated with are very, very frustrated. Some have already left the profession of nursing. So to what my colleague had said regarding the shortage of nursing, there is no shortage of nursing in Massachusetts, absolutely none. But what we do have is a shortage of nurses that are willing and wanting to work at the bedside under the current conditions that we have without a limit in place.
1: That's my guest, Donna Kelly. Williams, who uh, is with the Massachusetts Nurses Association for Ballot One. Uh, Before I go to Donna Glenn, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are two nurses representing both sides of the ballot. One question, both of them named Donna, which would legally require hospitals to limit the number of nurses per patient. Now, over to you, Donna Glenn, representing the American Nurses Association. And your are firm no. Make your best case for it from the nurse's perspective.
3: I'm going to give you a personal story. Mm-hmm. I was working on a unit. I had a four-patient assignment. My colleague had a four-patient assignment. M- one of my colleagues... Patients had just made the decision with their family to go comfort care only, hospice care. The family was very much struggling with that decision. My patient assignment, I had two patients that were going to be going home in the afternoon. I said to my colleague, give me one or two of your patients. I'll cover them. You need to focus on this family and this patient right now. Under this proposed ballot question, I would have been in violation and the hospital would have faced a fine because then I would have been taking care of five patients. And under this mandated ratio the hospital would have been fined for it.
1: And let me interject and say it's $25,000 per violation. Mm-hmm. If this were to go through and the limits were violated in any way, then the then the hospital has to pay $25,000. So that's 000. a okay. real-life
3: mm-hmm. example of how we make those judgments in the moment. That family, that patient needed more attention from that nurse. Now, under this ballot, if we wanted to bring down that nurse's assignment, someone would have had to float a nurse from another unit, or bring in another um, nurse for that unit, where I could easily have, I did take on one patient, and then I took on another patient when one of my patients had gone home. So uh, that's the kind of flexibility that we want. And to address the point of novice nurses, at the VA I work in the nurse residency program. It's a 1-year program for novice nurses to acclimate, transition to practice. Hospitals would no longer be able to support nurse residency programs. The because orientations because of costs. They no. need those nurses on the unit. It's estimated we're going to have to hire 5,000 new nurses if the ballot question were to pass. So the orientations will be cut, and the novice nurses will get even less than what they're getting now.
1: So tell me, I, I asked Donna Kelly Williams about the comfort that nurses would get knowing that they're, I, I absolutely have my backup. Tell me from your perspective, from the no perspective, what is the comfort the nurse gets?
3: Comfort mm-hmm. level the nurse gets, she's going to know she's going to be floated. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, nurses hate to float. You get used to the culture of your unit, you get used to where you're working, and nurses are going to be required to float. If I'm working in labor and delivery and it's slow, but the medical surgical unit is erupting, I'm going to be floated to that other unit. And that's one of the major downsides. Nurses are going to be going to units where they're not trained, where they're not comfortable because of the mandated
1: ratios. And that's. But but, but because you have to go. To each, each specialty has to have a certain number of nurses. Right. Why would that be?
3: Um, because of census. You can't what does predict, that mean? so you can't predict how many patients are going to be oh, on the unit at saying. any okay. time. Mm-hmm. So there's going to have to be more flexibility built in for nurses to be floating to other units, and especially when you think labor and delivery, no one can predict when a baby's going to be born. So it, it gets very challenging because of the rigid mandate.
1: I got a couple of real world situations that have happened recently that uh, seem to support both of your positions. So, I, and I'd like to get each. Of you to, to respond to it, uh, so for you Donna Kelly Williams who is for the initiative for ballot one, your group is very upset about UMass Memorial Healthcare's plan to close a 12-bed pediatric unit in Lemminster. Um Worried that you know this these patients won't, won't will have to travel 28 miles to Worcester to receive care. Blah blah blah. Why doesn't that support the no position, which is that hospitals will close programs or perhaps facilities entirely hospitals have made choices hospital executives right now are making
2: choices where they want to put their investments and unfortunately they're not making those investments in the patients what they are making investments in is building on new wings and buying up properties and other health care systems outside of massachusetts and outside of the united states the investment is a choice. It is a choice by hospital executives as to whether or not their investment is going to be put towards the safe care of a patient or to be putting on a new wing of a hospital. And that's the critical thing here. This ballot initiative is for nurses by nurses. It is funded by nurses. It is not funded by the hospital executives who funded the very study that uh, Donna is referring to regarding the amount of cost and the amount of nurses needed to fill this. Um, unfortunately, it's all meant to confuse the voters going forward. We have two nurses here that have two very different views. Right. And, and the bottom line is anyone who's listening that can ask a nurse who is actually in a hospital caring for a patient. Ask them what happens when they are forced to care for too many patients at one time.
1: All right. So let me go over to you, Donna Glenn. You're uh, against this. And what I just read was um, uh, Newton Chamber just voted against the ballot. They came out and said, we're, we're voting against it. We're very concerned uh, that this ballot question, the mandating is, is too much for us. Why doesn't that support Donna Kelly Williams' position that this is very much business-driven decision? Because these are, you know, they're they're representing businesses, let's be real. So if you read that, I would assume they're uh, they're protective of some kind of bottom line initiative as opposed to what's happening between the patient And and the nurse.
3: The Chambers of Commerce are concerned about hospital closures. And when a hospital closes, it doesn't just affect the hospital. It affects uh, the coffee shop down the street. It affects the gift shop down the street. So that's the business end of it. But patient care is not a business. And let me also just clarify one point, because I think this confuses your listeners. What's the difference between the Massachusetts Nurses Union and the American Nurses Association? The MNA um, represents about a quarter of the nurses in the Commonwealth. The American Nurses Association of Massachusetts has no union affiliation. We represent all nurses in the Commonwealth. MA is the union. We're for all nurses. We have many MA members in our organization. So that I think it's important that listeners realize that MA is the union wing and that only represents a quarter of the nurses in the state.
2: Kelly, uh, I can say that we're representing the patients on this particular issue and ensuring that we are caring for the patients in the safest way that we can and that is that is what the difference is here this is for the patients by the nurses that are caring for the patients that's the most important thing
1: through the union one of the things that that is a part of this bill is that hospitals cannot reduce other staff uh, to balance what may be needed to uh, in, increase the number of nurses per beds per unit uh, under a legal limitation. Now, I'm just going to quote to you from some of the commenters online. Mm-hmm. How come the hospital executives don't reduce their staff and then leave the leave the administrative staff of the of the hospital and the and the nurses alone? Uh, I'm going to give you a chance to address uh, that. Oh,
3: and <laughs> it's it's not a perfect system. Yeah. I'm not saying it is. And what really worries me is that 45 45 day implementation. We have 45 days if this ballot question is to pass to implement it. How we're going to find 5,000 nurses in 45 Days is troubling. All right. What we're going to do is, as my colleague stated, healthcare has moved out of the acute care setting into the community. We're going to be stripping those nurses in long-term care, in behavioral health, those nurses working on the opioid epidemic because the hospitals are going to start with sign-on bonuses because they have to get the nurses or face the fine. Mm -hmm. I worry in those 45 days how many nursing assistants are going to be let go. The California legislation Mm -hmm. supported licensed practical nurses, LPNs, which we use, this bill eliminates them. What happens to their professional practice if this bill is to pass? What okay. happens to our visiting nurses in the community? How are we going to? Are we going to
1: rob Peter to pay Paul? All right, so that's no from Donna Glenn, and that's the last word on no. You get the last word on yes, Donna Kelly Williams. Thank you so much, Kelly. <laughs>
2: this is important for everyone. Everyone has had a loved one in the hospital, will have a loved one in the hospital, or know somebody who is caring for someone that needs intensive hospital care. As a registered nurse, I can say that this is the most important thing that we can do for our patients. This is about being able to set a safe limit to the number of patients assigned to a registered nurse at one time, providing the best care possible under the best of conditions to be able to make a patient more comfortable, to have a successful recovery, to decrease the suffering of patients whose care is delayed or fragmented because a nurse can't get to the bedside to care for a patient. The importance of maintaining that, that team in place by the, the language in the legislature that you cannot reduce the other care member team members is important because we've learned lessons over the years of how important the other people are to the care of that patient. And that is why that language is specifically put into the ballot initiative to ensure that all members of the team are in place to provide that care.
1: All right. And that's the last word on yes for ballot question one. Um, Listeners, you can see that this is a complex issue that you're going to have to pay some close attention to. It is the number one question, so you'll have time to do that. I should note that there is a committee, a citizen review committee, Mm -hmm. looking at this bill, uh, the language of it, which is a little bit, uh, you know stuffy, and changing it into English so that everybody can follow it in all of its parts. And that, people should look to those uh, public discussions about the changing of the language and be prepared to check that out so that you'll understand, again, what uh, both Donna Kelly Williams and Donna Glenn have been sharing with us. So thank you. Thank you so much, Kelly. (laughs) Donna Kelly Williams is a registered nurse at the Cambridge Hospital Birth Center and president of the MNA, the Massachusetts Nurses Association. And she's a yes for question one, as we've said. Donna Glenn, registered nurse at the VA Boston Healthcare System and president of the ANA, the American Nurses Association of Massachusetts, and she's a no. Coming up, they say there is no greater pain than that suffered by a parent who has lost a child. Pain already unbearable, made worse when the loss is 100% preventable. Allison Lowell lost her only child when a driver took seconds to glance down at his phone. Now she's joined the movement to pass a law which would mandate hands-free driving. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Allison Lowell is mourning her daughter, Gabriella, killed just a month ago by a driver who glanced down at his cell phone. But in the midst of her grief, she is choosing to speak out in favor of a bill before the state's lawmakers, which would require drivers to use hands-free technology for their cell phones. This is the latest in a years-long effort to pass a hands-free bill, but this time advocates say it could happen. That's if the state's lawmakers will take up the bill by July 31st, which is the end of this legislative session. Joining me, Emily Stein, president of Safe Roads Alliance, who is heading the organized effort to push the bill through. Welcome back, Emily. Thank you, Kelly. And also joining me is Allison Lowell, whose daughter, Gabriella, was recently killed, as I just said, by a driver using his cell phone. This happened in Worcester. Allison, I'm so sorry for your loss, and I know how hard it is for you to talk about it, and I very much appreciate it. So let me begin by asking you about who Gabriella was. Just tell us a little bit about Gabriella.
0: Um, Okay. Um, My daughter was vibrant. She laughed a lot. She always had a smile on her face that was extremely contagious, never was in a bad mood, and if she happened to be in one, it would turn right around. She loved to dance. She was aspiring to be a vet. That was her goal in her life. She loved animals. Um, She was very family-oriented. Her and I were very close. And
1: She was a student, right?
0: Yes. Yes, she was. She was just 20.
1: And she's your only child.
0: Yep, my only
1: child. So, as painful as it is, would you tell us what happened as you understand it? You weren't there, but this is what the details are from the police.
0: Okay. um, My daughter was coming home from McDonald's on Grafton Street in Worcester. We live very close to McDonald's. So she was coming home. It was around 8.50, and she stopped across the street. She looked both ways. One line of traffic stopped. She was walking across. He came barreling down Grafton Street and hit her, and she died on impact two minutes away from home. And the reason is because he was texting and driving. He wasn't just looking down. He was texting and driving.
1: What did you think when you heard what he was doing? I mean, that this was the cause of her death.
0: Anger. Anger, anger, anger. I can't even just beyond that, beyond hurt. And... So upset that he didn't have any respect for anybody else's lives because that was a choice. Picking up his phone was a choice. This wasn't an accident, it was a choice.
1: What do you say to people who say it's just a f- couple seconds? You know, I can it's, look down and keep driving.
0: It's not a couple seconds. I lost my daughter within one second of him looking at his phone. One second matters. A half a second matters. And it's something that needs to stop.
1: Well, Emily Stein is here, president of Safe Roads Alliance, and she's been pushing very, very hard to get this bill through this year. Emily, talk about what's been many, many years of effort to get to this point.
4: Yeah, it's... um I don't know, Kelly. I, I really thought that this was a win, that this was going to be a solid win. And I was sharing with every advocate who's been working alongside us, every family member who's been working alongside us, who, who was just putting their all into this, that we've got this. Um, and I think the hard part with legislation is you, you think you're doing everything right, and then
1: you're still getting let down. Um, and this is a story—the one that Allison told about her daughter Gabriella's tragic death. You know this very well, personally.
4: Yeah, I'm in tears. I'm so sorry. Um, Thank you. And I lost my dad um, now seven years ago, and it was, you know, the worst thing that has ever happened to me. But um, meeting other families who have lost a child, and now hearing your story, it's just devastating. And as a mother of, of two kids, this is you know something I think about every day. because as soon as you see how vulnerable we are um, out there as, as any type of road user, a pedestrian, a cyclist, a driver, you, you realize how this can happen to anybody and it can happen you know, to, to you again. because if somebody's not looking at the road, they're not discriminating um, against, against your, your age, your race, your class, where you are, what time of day you're driving. If people aren't looking at the road, they're not driving.
1: One of the things that's um, maybe it's always been there, but it seems more intense this year. There are many groups and organizations in a strong coalition. They've been to the State House protesting. They've been talking to the legislatures. I mean, it's coming from a, a lot of sectors. It's not just one group of people pushing for this,
4: right, right. And I, I I believe I've been working on this for the past five years. I was trying to look back at my emails to see how many, you know, how many times have I emailed uh, our legislators. And um, each year, I learn something new, and each year it gets a little further. Um, and the 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 fact that racial profiling has been, um, a front and center concern for this many years. Um, I wonder how many more years is it going to take because this, this is what's getting in the way of it again. Um,
1: and we should explain. Uh, Representative Byron Rushing and Representative uh, Jeffrey Sanchez have been pretty strong about uh, concern that any police stops uh, that's called primary enforcement, might increase racial profiling. I think anybody listening can knows all the stories about police stopping folks around the way, uh, some sometimes improperly, uh, and it leads to something else. So what they're concerned about is that a bill that puts into place Um, legitimate stops by the police doesn't also get tangled up with uh, racial profiling. We should say at this moment, according to legislative aide Carolyn Sherrod for Representative Byron Rushing, he is prepared to uh, change to uh, accept a bill which includes data collection on racial profiling. That means that there's a system by way they can collect certain data and then it can be reviewed Um, He believes that that's a way to go forward, and he's prepared to do that. If the bill has that language, he will support it. If it doesn't have it, he will add an amendment. But either way, he's prepared to support it. That is not yet true of Representative Jeffrey Sanchez. Um, As far as we know, he still has some issues with the language that could change, but that's where we are today. And the reason that's important, um, more than just that's a block for the bill, is he's head of the Ways and Means Committee, which has a great amount of influence about what bill comes to the floor. Yeah. Right.
4: And we've tried to work Mm -hmm. with him several times and meet with his his staff and Representative Rushing has been, um, you know, helpful and and supportive, which we're grateful for. But I think, um, you know, we don't want the police to be profiling. We support data collection. I've been on the phone with the chiefs of um, chiefs of many organizations, the Mass Chiefs of Police Association, the Mass Major Cities. Um, Chiefs Association, and they're in support of the bill, but the problem seems to be that when they drafted when they drafted the language on data collection, they didn't consult with the police. Hmm. And if for something that affects their day to day operations, absolutely, that's important. Yes, like that is very important. And so now we're at the eleventh hour, and the police are in support of the bill. But they still want to see changes in the language on data collection. You know, their, their quote was, we absolutely support hands-free. We're not against data collection, but we need to tighten up the language or we need to add in certain components so that when the data is analyzed, there's a standard to which mm. it's compared to.
1: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and joining me are Emily Stein, president of Safe Roads Alliance, who's heading an organized effort to push a bill through that would legislate or put into place hands-free technology against cell phone use. And also with me is Allison Lowell, whose daughter Gabriella was killed just a month ago by a driver who was glancing at his phone. Allison said he was also texting on his phone um, and that was she was 20 years old in the prime of her life, a student just a month ago. All right. So uh, aside from these language issues, which if the legislators wanted to get it together, they have put language together rapidly and, you know, got it in place. Now that there has been conversation with the police, is there anybody else or any other reason for lawmakers at this point to not be in favor? Do you have enough uh, groundswell of support? Uh, beyond this issue, which is still very important, I'm just asking in general beyond that.
4: Yeah, I, I believe if if Speaker DeLeo prioritizes this issue and brings the bill to a vote, that it would pass very clearly in this in the
1: House. Over, do you think overwhelmingly?
4: I'm not sure about overwhelmingly, mm. and the reason I say that is not for because people are against it. We have very few people coming out against it. Um, personally, I've heard nobody have concerns. But what is very clear is that there are still some members of the House who are either choosing to not want to learn about it mm. or they have other priorities, which is understandable. There are a lot of issues in, in this State House. But when we've been going around to the State House to speak with certain reps and chairmen of, of committees where the bill has been stuck, either currently or in the past, it's just apparent that these elected officials are either, you know, they're not learning about it. They're, they're uninformed about it. Um, they're still quoting um, concerns about the economic barriers um, to hands-free devices or Bluetooth. But those were arguments in 2009. A lot of technology has advanced. Yeah, um, so definitely. we don't have to have brand new cars to have Bluetooth. We don't have to spend $100 on a, another
1: hands-free device. Uh, Allison, I hear you agreeing uh, with uh, Emily on this point. Uh, please add more.
0: I I totally agree with her. Um I just saw a commercial yesterday actually on TV for a new car that's coming out. On the screen in the car, the text messages come across that screen.
1: Yeah, that's if scary. If that's
0: not distracting, I don't know what is. It's <laughs> like it's like you're looking at your iPad or phone, but it's like it's higher up, but you're still being distracted by that.
1: Exactly. Um, Well, Allison, I can can tell you that the last time Emily was on um, and we had a discussion about this, I put uh, an app on my phone. It's just an app uh, which shuts off all notification in the car. So I don't get anything. I have an ability if I'm a passenger to say I'm a passenger and then can receive them. But otherwise, and, you know, it it hasn't made any, you know, I don't know what people are saying. They're going to miss something or whatever. You know, you get a notification that I'm driving or whatever, and life goes on. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's the point, right?
0: Exactly, exactly. Nothing is that important where you are risking not only your life, but killing somebody. Killing somebody who is innocent and is just going about their way just because you're selfish and you pick up your phone. There's nothing that important. Nothing. And I saw the text messages that this kid sent. They weren't of an important nature
1: whatsoever, Allison. do you think um you know every time a tragedy like this happens, some people get more informed um because there's a face uh to the statistics, which Emily has lots of statistics about stuff happening, and of course her own personal story. I wonder are yeah. you hearing from people now saying, "Oh my god i i i and I can assure you, I'm not gonna be." You know, using my cell phone in the car as a result of what happened to your daughter.
0: I have had an outpouring of people, um, friends of mine, friends of friends. Um, I'm actually meeting on Wednesday with Senator Michael Moy, Michael Moore, excuse me, to speak about this exact topic, mm-hmm. because something needs to be done, and I need to start somewhere, because I can't let my daughter's death be in vain.
1: And what where what area does he represent, Senator Michael Moore? Um, Worcester, Worcester, which is where the incident took place. Yes. Was he aware before you contacted him of what had happened?
0: Yeah, he contacted me first.
1: Good, good, good. So. So there's, any little
0: bit will help. Uh, just hearing my voice will yeah. help.
1: <laughs> well, absolutely. You know, um, Emily, there's a really scary statistic you have about how many times a day someone. Um, is killed by uh, this the absence of just technology. Can you share that? The
4: number we're working on is nine people a day are killed because of distracted driving, and that's nationwide. But those are the deaths that we know about. So that number is as low as, you know, That that's a very low number. Um, the National Safety Council and um, advocates across the country know that it, it is a lot higher if we had better... Um, investigation around distracted driving, better technology to determine phone use, um, then that number would be significantly higher.
1: Emily, we have a little bit more of of, uh, a week or so, you know, before the end of the legislative session, you know, business days. Um, What can you say to those um, senators and uh, representatives, who again can change language at the last minute? We've seen that, um, so that people can get on board. I, I I think
4: they they need to to wake up. Um, I really think that this can't be about politics anymore. Um, this can't be about the House versus the Senate. This is a public health issue. This is a public safety issue, and you know for. Gabriella and I for for Gabriella for for Katie for Emma for Merritt all these people we have lost. Um, This is personal, but it also is public health and public safety of everybody in this state. And for our legislators to not pay attention to that, this is something that they can go home to their constituents and say, "I got this done." I got this done for you and I got this done for people um, across the state because this was important. And they should feel proud about that. Um, And if they don't, I have to say they're not doing their job. Um, Eighty percent of Massachusetts voters support a hands-free law. And, you know, they're not listening. And that's my main thing is, you know, Speaker DeLeo, he needs to start listening and he needs to start speaking. He is not out front on road safety issues, and he needs to be, because we're going to keep losing people every single year, and that's on their hands.
1: Mm -hmm. And one more question, Emily. If this bill, for some reason, does not pass, what happens? So
4: I just sent out an email to every member of the House urging them to pass it, um, showing them the coverage we got from the rally we had last week. Um... And saying if 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 you don't get this done this session, then then I started filling out paperwork for um, to get this on the ballot, because mm-hmm. if the legislature can't get it done, and for the past ten years we've been trying to get a hands-free bill passed, and if if it's not done in ten years, then you know we we don't need to rely on them. It's the people we need to let the people speak. And if this is on the ballot, I am positive this will pass. Alison, please
1: respond. Yes.
0: She is 100% absolutely right. If it was up to the American people, people in our area, to vote on this in an election, they would totally vote for it. And I think, in my heart, and I could be a little bitter, if any one of those individuals in the House lost a child or a family member, that bill would be passed. It's not affecting them, so they're not caring enough. That's how I feel about it. It's not affecting their everyday life. They didn't lose somebody. They're not walking around without their mother, their father, their child. Mm
4: -hmm. Allison, I've, I've heard that excuse in the House by a member of leadership, and I emailed him in the middle of the night saying this is keeping me up at night because we can't wait until somebody in your statehouse loses a loved one like yeah. why you have not the their
0: lives more important than my daughter's life or your father's life right. why would why would it get passed? i just i'm baffled i i'm angry and i'm just so baffled by this it makes not one iota of sense why they're dragging their feet on passing this
1: And this is an opportunity where you can use, actually, technology for good. I mean, there's always consequences on the use of technology, but here's an opportunity where it it works in support of something that's positive. I thank both of you for joining me, and I hope your conversation goes well with the Senator Allison. We'll all be thinking of you and holding good thoughts for you as you start a very painful uh, grief journey. And um, thank you for sharing with us who Gabriella was.
0: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: And thank you for joining me, Emily. Thanks, Kelly. Emily Stein is president of Safe Roads Alliance, advocating for passage of a bill this year that bans the use of handheld devices while driving. Allison Lowell is the mother of Gabriella Lowell, who just last month was struck and killed by a driver on his cell phone. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please write to us at undertheradar@wgbh.org. at wgbh.org. Our engineer is Doug Sugertz. Wakanda Loingapai is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.